This is recording number 10856 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, February 28, 2010. This is the seventh message in the series by Randy Bolt titled, Under Construction. This message is titled, Restoring Your Soul, Part 7. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to conclude today our study called Under Construction. We've been talking about how the book of Nehemiah is uh, symbolic. It is an analogy about how God wants to restore our souls. When you have come to faith in Christ, the Bible says that you have been reborn. The connection between you and God, the eternal connection between you and God that was broken because of sin has been restored. But there's much damage to the soul that sin has registered. There's been penetration of our lives that has caused the walls, of, if, you, if you could imagine, the walls of our souls to be broken down. And that's the condition that we find the city of Jerusalem in, in the book of Nehemiah. So just like you and I have had, many of us who've come to faith in Christ have had our spirits rebuilt. The spiritual li- our spiritual lives restored and there's worship and relationship with God. Nehemiah became overwhelmed with concern that the walls, the defining aspects of the city of Jerusalem were in shambles. And he um, mounted an effort to restore or rebuild the walls of the city. His name, Nehemiah, means consolation of God or comfort of God. And uh, I've said this now. This is my seventh time to say this since this is our seventh installment in this series. That the, Jesus called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the comforter. And just as the comforter, the Holy Spirit comes on the scene of your life to restore your soul. Um, we see this uh, played out in a graphic way with Nehemiah coming to Jerusalem to restore the walls of the city. We're going to conclude this study today, and uh, we have made a, we've watched so much progress be made, uh, and the ups and downs and ins and outs of what's gone on there. But uh, last week we saw that the walls had been rebuilt. And uh, the gaps closed and the gates hung. And we begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth. Sackcloth is like, uh, you know, um, burlap. I mean, they're making themselves as uncomfortable as possible. And with dust on their heads. And here's why. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins. And they they were recognizing that the condition of their city was the result of their sins and their forefathers' sins. And they confessed that. Um, So they, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, meaning they read from the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day 
And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now, what follows uh, in your Bibles there is a fairly lengthy um, kind of prayer, kind of declaration. And the people recount their history of how God met them, you know, hundreds of years before this, uh, when they were slaves in Egypt. And delivered them from that slavery and brought them to the promised land and gave them this land flowing with milk and honey that they were intended to enjoy and prosper and be a blessing to the rest of the world from. And yet they turned their back on God. They again and again, time and time again, uh, disobeyed the Lord, uh, became worshipers of idols. These are the people of God, worshiping false gods and engaging in every sort of iniquity that you can imagine. And it goes on and recounts all the times that God in His mercy and His grace tried to woo them back, call them back. And there would be times of, of revival. And then once again, they would uh, surrender to uh, to the temptations that the world around them posed. And eventually they were all swept up away again in slavery. And so they recount this and then they come to the punchline, which is we don't want to ever let this happen again. It's our fault. We confess it. It's we, God, we have only praise to you for your grace, your tenderness and your mercy and your patience with us. Everything that has come uh, of devastation to our lives and to our cities, we're at fault for. We confess that and we worship you and we choose today to never let that happen again. Read with me at verse 38 now of chapter 9 as they conclude this declaration prayer. And because of all this, they're talking to God, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So they actually write a document, compose a document saying some things that we're going to talk about in a minute to, to declare their intentions to never uh, turn their back on God again. And they are so intent on this that you'll see at the beginning of chapter 10 a whole list, a long list of the leaders of the people of Israel that sign this document. You know how you see, many of you perhaps have been to Washington, D.C. and to the National Archives and seen the uh, Declaration of Independence or the Constitution and the signatures at the bottom of those documents. And this is like that. This is all of these people step forward as leaders of the people and they put their name on the dotted line and they say, yes, we commit to these things before God. And you know, they did that for themselves. They didn't, do that. they didn't do that for God's sake. It's not like God is going to have some you know, national archive somewhere where this is filed away. They did that for themselves, to hold themselves accountable. And um, so what they wrote is summarized by three things, and we're going to read them at, in verse, beginning at verse 30 of chapter 10. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. They're writing this document and they say, God, we pledge before you, we will not intermarry. We will not have intercourse with the world around us. Now, this is not about interracial marriage or any of that kind of thing. In fact, I'm, I'm in a, an interracial marriage. My wife is Caucasian. I'm an idiot. 
This is not, this is not about that, okay? This, is a, this has been um, the leading edge of the Israelites' sins throughout their history. When God brought them into the promised land, he said, I want you to displace all of the people who are currently living here. And I want you to have nothing to do with anything having to do with them. Don't intermarry. Don't. Because he knew that the minute that they began to embrace anything of the culture of these, these idolatrous, um, evil... I, I, and please, I, I'm not... I'm not overstating uh, the fact. These were peoples who had become so depraved in their sin, not the Israelites yet, but the peoples of this, of, that had occupied the promised land before they moved in. They were so depraved that they were offering their children as sacrifices to false gods, burning them alive on, on altars. And God said, don't have anything to do with that culture. Do not engage in anything that connects you with the world's mindset and, and uh, uh, systems because it will pollute you. And every time they disregarded that, it always ended up hurting them and wounding them and, and uh, just screwing everything up. And so they, they recognize this. The people of God recognize this here on Nehemiah's day. Their, their city's being restored. And they know there's a spiritual revival at the heart of all of this. And they say before God and sign their names on the dotted line. They say, we will not have intercourse with the world's system. You know... A lot of us make the mistake of thinking we can have safe sex with the world. Not possible. Now Jesus, when he was uh, teaching his followers, he, he made it clear that he was not intending for us to, you know, become cloistered. In other words, to... Um, you know, just hide out together in little holy huddles and let the world go to hell. That's not the point here. It's, it's one thing to be in the world and to serve as salt and light in this world. It's another thing to be of this world. But it's a thin line. It's razor thin, dear ones. And if we're going to be, live the, in the benefit of having restored souls. If we don't want to see those walls come down again, we need to be as serious as these people were when they said, Lord, we're not going to have intercourse with this world. Now, verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. This has to do with faith. This has to do with the Sabbath. And um, we, most of us in the room, don't get the whole Sabbath thing. Now, I remember when, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Sundays, which was kind of the Protestant Sabbath, and, uh, you know, pro, uh, Protestantism was kind of the predominant um, 
culture of, of the United States, at Sundays was pretty much nothing was open. There was no shit stores open. I mean, it's hard to imagine now because we go, you know, 24-7, 365. But there was a, trust me, there was a day when people kind of at, uh, honored the Sabbath in that way. But you know what? This has nothing to do with that. But you see over and over again through the scripture, God calling his people to honor the Sabbath. And you think, well, what's the big deal? This is the deal. The Sabbath is all about faith. It's all about trusting God. You work six days and you get to the end of that day and you punch out and you say, God, I don't have enough money. God, I don't have God, I don't have, but I'm going to trust you. And tomorrow, I'm not going to work. It talks about the seventh year here. God had part of the whole Sabbath thing that we don't even, rarely do we talk about the whole Sabbath deal was that in the seventh year, every seven years, the people were supposed to not even till their ground. They were supposed to take a year off. And listen, here's the, can you imagine though, you're, you're, uh, you're an entrepreneur in a way because you, what you grow in that field is what feeds your face and your kids. And so it's a huge step of faith because think about this, when you stop, uh, when you stop tilling and harvest, you know, uh, tending and harvesting your crop after the sixth year, the seventh year it lies fallow. The eighth year you have to replant and nothing's going to grow. I mean, nothing you're going to be able to harvest. It's not going to be till the following year. So you're talking in the sixth year, God said, if you'll honor me in this, I will cause your crops to be so great in the sixth year, it will sustain you through the Sabbath, Sabbath year, the seventh and on and through the eighth as well. So it's about faith. And Jesus said the Sabbath was not, not made, or man was not made for the Sabbath. We tend to think of these kinds of things as stuff we have to do to please God. And it doesn't make any sense, but oh well, you know, I want to go to heaven, so I'll do these things. <laughs> but it's for us. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. Faith is not something we do for God. Trusting God is not something we do for him. It's something God is giving to us. The safety, the security, the rest that comes when you know I, I, I can't figure this out, but I trust you that you're going to cause my field to produce enough in the sixth year that it will sustain me through the seventh and the eighth, that I can take the seventh day off and you're going to somehow make up for it. It's all about trust in God. And the third thing they said, it was um, verse 31 Excuse me, uh, verse 32. <laughs> also, we made ordinances for ourselves to ex uh, exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. 
For the children of Israel and the children of Levi, that's one of the tribes of Israel, the priesthood, the tribe of the priesthood, shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms, where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. This is all about get their, their tithes and offerings. Three things as they stand before God and say, we're not going to ever let this happen again. We're not going to have intercourse with the world. We're going to trust you and honor the Sabbath. And we are going to give to you our tithes and offerings. We're going to give to you of our substance, that which is yours, God. We're going to honor you and thank you with the giving of... And we're going to collect all of this stuff into the storerooms of the temple. It belongs to you. We're going to give it to you. And for the maintaining of the priests. And, the, and we're, going to, we're going to take care of our spiritual life. And, and we don't often make the connection of the giving of our tithes and offerings to anything spiritual. We always think about, well, we're just, we're just kind of helping make sure they keep the lights on here and the doors open and the pastor paid and all that kind of stuff. But listen... There is a direct line from this thing to my heart. And Jesus said that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your heart is, uh, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God knows this. God is not after your money. He doesn't need it. But what he is after is your heart and mine. So they say, okay, God, we're not going to have any intercourse with the world. We're, not, we're going to honor the Sabbath and give you trust. And we're going to give you our devotion. We're going to offer to you that which belongs to you. All right. Now, I wish the story ended there. Dang, I wish it ended there. I've had, oh, I've prayed so much this week. God, could I stop this message right there? And uh, no, I can't because the book doesn't end there and it does not end well. This story does not end well. Let's go on to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. Now, in the meantime, um, somewhere along in there, after about 12 years of serving as uh, the uh, governor of this region, Nehemiah returns to the courts of Artaxerxes or the courts of the Medo-Persian rulers uh, because he's only been on a leave of absence, really. And so he goes back there, and for some unknown amount of time, during that time, which can't be that long. In fact, the scripture here refers to it as days. But, you know, after making the journey back to, uh, to Persia and all that, we know it's not like a week. But it isn't really long either. And during that period of time, the whole thing goes to pot. The people began to intermarry. In fact, one of the high priests, we'll read about it, one of the high priest's grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. You remember Tobiah and Sanballat? They're enemies, the, the, the analog to, to the devil in our story. The high priest's grandson has married Sanballat's daughter. It's become common practice to become having or to have 
exchange and intercourse with the world around them. They have stopped honoring the Sabbath. They are, you know, when people show up to sell their wares and it talks, we'll, we'll read about it. People, foreigners come to town and they got a new market. So they come to town to sell their wares on the Sabbath and the people are buying and they're doing all this stuff and they're disregarding everything about trusting God. And they uh, so neglect the giving of their tithes and offerings and bringing them into the storerooms of the temple that they, all of the priests, and the, or not all, all of the priests, but many of the priests and singers and those who were supposed to be supported by those gifts all had to go back to work tending their own uh, 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 fields. And so we pick up the story in verse 4. This is the epitome of the disaster that's happened. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, he's the high priest. He's the high priest. Having authority over the storerooms. He's the guy who's in charge of collecting the, the devotion of the people. The tithes and offerings. And making sure that it is dispensed in ways that honor God. He's the authority over the storerooms of the house of our God was allied with Tobiah and he prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. The high priest had emptied the storerooms and made a suite for Tobiah to live in the temple of God. That's how bad things had gotten in such a short period of time. Can you imagine Nehemiah returning now to this scene? His arch enemy, the person who from day one, Sanballat and Tobiah... The persons from day one who have opposed everything of the rebuilding and restoring work of God in this city lives in the temple. And Nehemiah shows up. Verse 6. But during all this I was not in Jerusalem for the... For in the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household uh, goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to, dis- to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. These are the tithes and offerings. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and and, uh, the oil to the storehouse. Verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. 
And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre, these are foreigners, dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut, because they were literally opening the gates. They were literally opening the gates to their enemies. And I commanded the gates to be shut and chained, charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them. (laughs) You're not going to like this. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Verse 28, And one of, one of the sons of uh, Joida, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. And I already told you about that. Therefore, I drove him from me. Thus, I cleanse them of everything pagan. Like I said, I wish that this story ended better. But the truth of the matter is, I know my own story. And you know what? In all the things that God has done in my life, so many, so much that God has done of recovery in my life, I have yet to reach the day where I just ride off into the sunset. (laughs) The adversary of my soul is always there to try to find another way in. He's always looking to corrupt and corrode and and, uh, disable. And I got to think that maybe that might be true for some of us here too. But I thank God that even though sometimes God in his loving mercy towards me has to confront me in some pretty serious ways and under some pretty serious terms that he does not give up on me. I'll I'll tell you, if I was Nehemiah returning to that mess, I'd have said, I poured 12 years of my life into this at my own expense. I'll see you later. But that's not our God. And that's not the Holy Spirit. So perhaps you have found yourself beginning once again to be attracted to the things of the world and making little exchanges and interactions with the world system playing with the things that you know 
are off limits to you. Perhaps you have given place to fear in your life and, and uh, finding it more difficult to trust God, especially in these days of serious financial trouble that so many people are in and thinking, well, I need to do everything possible. Yes, you do, except you will never be able to do enough. At some point, you have to decide the six days are over. I'm resting today. Amen. I'm trusting in my God. Perhaps you, like me, have uh, been withholding what belongs in the storehouse of God. You've been withholding your heart from him. When you withhold your heart from the Lord, there's somebody else that wants to move in. Always. But I believe the Holy Spirit is here today as we conclude this study to say, I'm always in the business of restoring your soul. Wherever you are, whatever this current situation, whatever the state of your life, I'm always in the business of restoring your soul where you'll let me well, you're, where, where you will cooperate with me, I am here. <laughs>